You are listening to audio from the Decidedly Podcast. For more information, find us on Instagram at Decidedly Podcast. All right, I have a question for you. When you're advancing towards something, you're moving in a certain direction, making certain decisions. How do you know personally if you are doing the right thing? Um, oh, that's a hard question to answer. I, I would say that one is I have to have a clear aim before I can know if I am on track. So I have to be very clear with my vision and the purpose uh, and the objective. Otherwise, I'll never know if I'm on track if the objective is vague. And then second is that Ideally, whatever that objective is, is aligned with God's purpose for me. Okay, so it's something that's congruent with God's word. And so it's congruent with my purpose. It's congruent with God's word. At that point, if there are no objective ways to measure progress, then I have to rely on either counselors, uh, advisors, coaches to reaffirm that I am on the right track, or I rely on God to give me the tools that would allow me to stay on track. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I think if you look at things and look at, you know, what, what am I trying to accomplish? What's my larger purpose? And then go with the sort of the intuition and assuming that that larger purpose is in alignment with sort of moral biblical principle. And then that intuition, how does it feel? And then based on what I know about the situation, am I making the decision? So I kind of look at those three things, alignment, uh, intuition, and knowledge. A lot of times I think I may struggle with knowing if I'm on track. And one of the reasons why I struggle and I don't get those answers from God is what I am pursuing isn't really for the mission of God's kingdom. It's for my own purposes. Well, not everything is a higher calling decision, right? I mean, some things are just, I've got to make a decision, hire this person or make this strategic. That is a higher calling decision. Okay. All right. Yeah. 100%. So if I'm talking about decisions within my business and by the, and I've surrendered my business to God, then even small decisions within that business who I hire mm-hmm. are going to be decisions that I, I can also surrender to God. And, and if I have not truly and genuinely surrendered the business to God, and instead I want us to hit this revenue requirement because that's going to be more money in more, my pocket so I can get the nicer car then that's not really about surrendering my life and my business to God. And then I find that it's harder to know when I'm on track when I can say, Hey, I, I genuinely am surrendering this over to God. So yeah, maybe the nicer car is part of this. Um, but it's not so that I can have the nice car for my own luxury. It's so that I can have, I can have the nicer car so that in some way that will, you know, fulfill fulfill the mission so for example i had clients wanted to build this big nice house and and when the house was about them and their desire for a nice house it was harder to know when they were on track when they realized oh this house would allow us to serve more people it would allow us to have church parties in the community allow us to have you know offer a place to stay for people who are on hard times it was like we can do ministry from the house it's not about us having a nice living room it's about a bigger purpose than it was. It started to fall into place easier for them. Perfect. Yeah. Our guest today knows a lot about making biblically based decisions. Pastor David Daniels has served as the lead pastor of Central Bible Church in Fort Worth, Texas since 2005. He has a Bachelor of Fine Arts from University of Texas at Austin, a Master's of Divinity from Denver Seminary, and a Doctor of Ministry from Dallas Theological Seminary. He's the co-founder of Beta Upsilon Chi, which is a Christian fraternity, um, better known by Bucks. His teaching ministry includes the Perspectives on the World Christian Movement, Pine Cove Christian Camps, Canacook Institute, and pastoral leadership training in a dozen countries, including Cuba, Burundi, Ethiopia, and India. He's the author of Next Step Discipleship and Next Step Church, handbooks to help churches and their people take steps to greater missional living. He's also written Wonder, Advent Meditations on the Miracle of Christmas, and An Unexpected King. We talked about a wide range of topics today. We talked about choosing counselors in your life that align with God in their counsel, three steps to a biblical walk, the difference between the things we should stop doing and the things we should start doing, 
three steps to effective change and the importance of walking alongside people of faith action-packed it was action-packed david's a very smart guy uh his opinions beliefs and wisdom is extraordinarily well thought out we got into deep philosophy if you stick around you'll be entertained you'll learn something my name's sanger smith as always i'm with my dad sean smith and this is decidedly Hey, David. Thanks for being here. Hey, David. Hey, it's great to be here. Hey, Sean Sanger. Good to see you guys. I've got a very hard-hitting question right out of the gate. So you're um, an authoritative figure here being a pastor. Um, number one Sunday school song of all time. Ooh. Number one Sunday so- school song of all time. Probably has to be Jesus Loves Me, right? All right. That, I think that's, 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 that's the go-to. That's kind of the go-to, yeah. yeah. Who won that? Who won there? Was there a bet placed on that? No, I, I you, you know, I could get consensus. I randomly, I randomly thought about um, God's house. I don't even know if that's the title, you know. Yeah, I know. Or, or Father's house, right? And yeah. uh, I thought about how frustrating it would be to me when I was like eight years old and all the other kids would do the ad libs. Uh huh. You know, big, big, yeah. house. you got a big, big yard where we big would play house. football. Yeah. Touchdown. I was Lots like, ah, oh, stop it. Stop the ad libs. We're ruining the rhythm. <laughs> So I just right. to say, but that's hey. obviously the correct answer. I think yeah. so. Yeah, so. that's good. <laughs> so every time David and I meet, and David and I have known each other for a long time, and we always end up having these great discussions about biblical truths or all these types of things, and I always wish they had been recorded or that you'd been there. Uh, so now so we're going to record it. Yeah, well, now we get to it. That's yeah, so and funny. So. <laughs> I tell Tiffany the same thing. She says, how did your meeting with Sean go? And I say, well, you know, we spent maybe an hour, an hour and a half together, and we spent about uh, an hour and 15 minutes talking about the world and church and life and family and that sort of thing. And then we spent about 15 minutes talking about kind of the nuts and bolts of the portfolio. And it all seems to balance out just perfectly. <laughs> yeah, that's, I think that works out. That's, that's the that proportion. That may not be a that's good advertisement right of your business. That may not be a good advertisement <laughs> of your business, but... but uh, but it yeah, it's, it works for me. Yeah, we don't want everybody to think we're interested in their profession. <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> I just want to talk about what you do for a living. Not everybody, though. <laughs> well, we we had talked last time, and it, I, I think if I'm recalling, we ended up getting down this path on biblical truth and decision making, yeah. and yeah. and how you define biblical truths from moral truths and how they correlated to those and how you use sort of a biblical basis for better decision-making. And, and you know, to, to make decisions from a biblical framework, I think, for me, I, I start with several premises. And that premise, the first and most basic fundamental premise is that there's a God and that he knows the end of all things from the beginning of all things. So if you don't if, if you don't really believe that God exists or that the God you believe in is a God who is rather limited and local only in the world and doesn't see things large, well, then there would be really no reason to even consider a biblical framework for, for decision making. You'd use all the other frameworks that you have at your disposal. So my first premise is that there is a God that he, the Bible says that he knows the end from the beginning and uh, in his knowledge, he sees everything that is happening and everything that will happen. And so that, that's kind of the first premise that I start with in order to even you know, start to even have a conversation about a biblical framework for making decisions. And then there's other premises as well, but I think that's the most fundamental. So if we look at that first one, how do we get someone to a point if they're not buying into that premise? Right. In other words, you, you've got to assume a lot. Okay, we're going to assume there is a God, and then use right. God's principles. And for essentially, that God is um, active in the world and not a yeah. not a limited God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I th- that's a great question, and I and I would say, you know, when we when we open the Bible, the very first words in Genesis one is are in the beginning God. So the writer of Genesis actually presumes from the beginning that there is a God. He doesn't start with an argument to argue the existence of God. He starts with a, the fundamental 
premise, the given that God exists. Now, I know that not everybody begins from that framework. And so, you know, how has God made himself known to all people? And there's and there's two kinds of revelation. There's general revelation and then there's special revelation. General revelation, I think Sean is what you're what you're asking about. How right. does anybody, how could anybody know that God exists? And and, and what we know is that God makes himself known to all people at all times in a couple of different ways. Number one, he makes himself known in creation. The Bible says the heavens declare the glory of God. When we walk outside and we see this, the stars in a, in, you know, out, out in the desert where there's no light pollution, we can just see the majesty of the stars. We stand at the top of the continental divide. I mean, I know you, you two especially have had travels all over the places where you've stood in places that have probably caused your mouth to drop open and think, boy, this yeah. is bigger and grander and more beautiful than any individual or any just biological or chemical process could have created. So God makes himself known in creation. Uh, secondly, God makes himself known in human conscience. He puts what philosophers call a sense of oughtness in the heart and in the mind of an individual, even before they're taught moral truths. So you can see, you know, we've got three grandchildren now. I don't know if you got knew that. We got number three, number three just this ah, week. Congrats. Yeah, yeah. Congrats. So, you know, those children, watching these children grow up, even before their parents teach them, you should, you shouldn't do this, do that, that sort of thing, you can see a sense of, um, for the lack of a better term, guilt or shame when they know they've done something they ought not to do. Even children in a sandbox... <laughs> That maybe were not raised with a with a with a sense of a moral framework. Even a child in a sandbox will say to another child, "You ought not to do that. You shouldn't do that." So there's a there's yeah. a sense of justice or oughtness in the human heart. And then the third way that God makes Himself known is through what we would call providence, the fortunate, good things that happen to all people, so that even an atheist in a downpour when they drive to the store and they find a parking place in the front row right next to the doors, can even find themselves saying, thank God. <laughs> they, they don't realize what they're saying, but, <laughs> but what they're doing is, is they're, they're reflecting on the fact that there has been a fortunate thing that was not in their control that happened to them. And the Bible says that that's intended to point us back to the fact that there is a good God who does good things to all people. So creation, moral human conscience, and providence are the three primary ways that God makes himself known to all people at all times. And that moral consciousness, even when children don't understand what the the rules of the world are explicitly, and maybe they haven't been taught everything that is a do or a don't, they at least are aware that there is some objective code that's bigger than them. That's exactly right. Yeah, there's a moral code that is beyond my family, you know, because Families form moral codes. This is the way we act. Communities form moral codes. But there are moral codes that that transcend families and communities. You know, you ought not to take something that doesn't belong to you. That's not an that's not a that's not a Daniels ideal. That's not an American ideal. That's a human ideal. And and so even when those things are not deliberately taught to children, there is a sense of oughtness inside the heart of a, an individual that causes them to realize, hey, I, I think I'm I'm crossing a line. Now, whether or not they do anything about that or not, they may just continue to cross that's the line a do, and do That's a different want. story altogether. Yeah. yeah I, had, I had heard it said, yeah, I'd heard it said that the Ten Commandments existed before Moses brought them down. Yeah. 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 That they were yeah. already he did, there. He didn't create them. They weren't created in that moment. They were transcribed in that moment. Yeah. Yeah. Paul, the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans, which is a pretty thick and weedy book in the New Testament, in Romans chapter 2, verse 14, he says, and when Gentiles, and when Paul uses the word Gentiles, he means those that are following pagan gods, not the true God of the world. And when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things required by the law, they prove that the law is, and, and I'm paraphrasing here, is basically been written on their hearts. So when non-religious people 
do ethical things, the ethic that they demonstrate reflects the fact that there's there's a code that's written on the human heart that causes us to do this and do that and not do this and to feel guilty or ashamed when we when we when we violate that sense of oughtness. How do you respond to people that would say, well, that's not because God told me to do it. I didn't need to be told by God. I didn't have this um, code of ethics instilled upon me. I did. I know these things because I'm a good person. I'm just a decent person. And I was raised by decent people. I'd say, uh, you know, thank goodness, you know, many people are raised by decent people. My question would be for such a person, do you expect the oughtness that you sense do you expect that sense of oughtness, do you expect that rule or that law to be true for everybody in the world? So, and some people would go, no, it's just true for me. It doesn't have to be true for anybody else. But there are some fundamental laws that are not just true for me. I do expect them to be true for everyone else. Doesn't mean that they are, but I do expect universally for the law, don't kill somebody without cause to be true for everybody living on planet Earth. I'm hoping that everyone yeah. obeys obeys that particular law. So the fact that I agree with that law and I expect my neighbors around the world to agree with that law means that it wasn't something that was just put into me because of my family background or because of my nationality. It, it, it obviously points to a lawgiver that's much higher up. And the... Those laws that are transcended across families and cultures more or less encompasses the Ten Commandments, right? So outside of the Ten Commandments, how do we get, um, how are we, how are you making decisions based on a, a, a biblical principle of that universal truth? Yeah. So, so, uh, I make decisions, you know, I make decisions a couple of ways. Number one, because I believe that God does exist, and I believe that he is a personal God. We can talk about how do we know that God's a personal God, but because I believe that he exists and he's a personal God, I believe, therefore, that he intends to reveal himself to me. He intends to reveal what's good to me because he's a good God. He wants to do good things. He is uh, He is for human flourishing. You had a, You had a a guest on your podcast recently, Daniel Strickland, who talked about the human flourishing that God desires in business. And so I believe that God desires human flourishing in my life, in my neighbor's life, in the world. And so because he's, he exists, because he's good, and he desires human flourishing, I can turn to this God and I can expect this God to help me understand his will. Now, he does that through prayer. He does that through the word that he has revealed uh, through writers throughout time. He reveals that through the counsel of good people that he puts around me. Uh, so there's a variety of ways that as I want to, as I desire to seek the will of God for my ministry, but for somebody else, their business or for their family or what school to go to or any of the you know, myriad of decisions that we have to make, that we try to make during life, we can turn to that God and believe that he will reveal himself in any number of ways. So we can, I guess, prove the existence of the objective moral code by looking at people across the world and throughout time and saying these these truths seem to be consistent throughout humanity's timeline. In all corners of the earth, people operate by the idea that murder is wrong. You shouldn't murder. You shouldn't kill each other, right? So the, the fact that people do that proves that there is some larger code that is not confined within individual families or communities. Okay, so now we've established the code exists. How do we know if there are codes, if there are laws that are a part of that code, yet are not observed throughout people across time? How do we know that they are a part of that code? Yeah, I think fortunately, God has revealed himself in his word. I mean, the Bible uh, in its 66 books is God's written revelation to human beings, and uh, I think it's I think it's phenomenal that a personal God would reveal Himself throughout history, and, and as in order to give me specifics above and beyond just the simple moral you know the simple moral code that was given to Moses on Mount Sinai. 
So when I read the pages of Scripture, the Bible the Bible actually teaches me about investing. The Bible teaches me about uh, human relationships. The Bible teaches me about health. The Bible teaches doesn't teach me everything about investing and everything about relationships and everything about health. It doesn't teach me everything, but the Bible does give me specifics in a in a great number of areas of life by that if I read Scripture, I find God's will revealed uh, in in any number of these issues. So He reveals not only His general moral code, but He also reveals the specifics. Uh, of how that code is lived out in each one of our lives. So how do you differentiate between, Eric, if there's a moral code and there's a, that's our revelation of of God, and we see that as the the Christian, the Judeo-Christian God, does it matter then in, in terms of decision-making along the lines of this moral code that that's the Christian God that we're, feel like we're being revealed? Or, or does it, is it okay to just say that it's the moral truth? Well, I would say certainly there are good morals found in all kinds of religions throughout the world. And there are parallel morals. There are things that you can find in Christianity that you also find in Judaism and you can find in Islam. And you find that there are there are some continuity of those moral codes found uh, some moral codes that are found throughout many, if not all, religions of the world. The question for me comes down to source material. Who wrote Scripture? Do I believe that there is a God and that God has revealed himself in Scripture? If I believe in this God, and this God says that he is the one and only true God, then my conclusion, therefore, becomes that all other gods are not true gods. I can't, I can't have it both ways. I can't say that the Judeo-Christian God is the true God and all other gods are also true gods because the Judeo-Christian God excludes all other gods as not being true gods. Does that make sense? Yeah, sure. So if God excludes other gods as being the true gods, and oh, by the way, it works the opposite way as well. Because the uh, because the uh, Muslims' view of of Allah excludes some of the teachings of Jesus. So this is not just an exclusivity that's looked at from a Christian framework. This is an exclusivity that's looked at through just about every other religious framework, where each god is lifted up as the true god, and all other sure. gods are are not true. So if the Judeo-Christian God is the true God then the other gods which claim to be true are not true, therefore they're false, which, and, and I say this very respectfully, are not telling the truth. So if you have a decision of which you're going to follow, you're going to follow a god who has said that he is true or something that is not true, I, w- I would choose the path of truth every single every single time. So I, I think one of the biggest sins we can make is a sin against ourselves when we have that conscience that's that's revealing to us what the right thing is. And maybe that's coming from a moral code, that's coming from God, that's coming from, you know, somewhere that's that's saying, don't do X. Yeah. And you do X. And and you have yeah. that that conflict immediately. It's that that crisis of conscience. Um that's a really super guide to decision making. Have you seen times when people have just fought that or, you know, hit the override button and just blown past that uh, that governor that's, that's supposed to be there to help ab- us? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So so the Bible actually talks about this. The Bible talks about the fact that God, God convicts the world. Uh, Jesus said that when the Holy Spirit came, the Holy Spirit he would send later, the Holy Spirit would convict the world in regards to sin and righteousness and judgment. The Holy Spirit sent into the world is was sent in part to cause all people, both followers of Jesus and non-followers of Jesus, to go, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. Uh, that wasn't a very good decision. I'm not so sure that's right. I'm not so sure I should do that. And so the Holy Spirit is convicting the world and restraining, in a, in a sense, is restraining evil in the world. The truth of the matter, as you just say, Sean, not everybody listens to that restraint. Not everybody necessarily 
uh, obeys the sign that says danger bridge out ahead right. instead of slowing slowing down and kind of looking and saying oh, I need to I actually need to kind of pace myself here and and slow down they they just continue to put pedal to the metal and, and drive off the cliff and so <laughs> there's no question that God in his grace is desiring to turn people from bad decisions and to lead people into right good decisions and and the question is whether or not any individual will heed that that governor as you say that's been put in the human heart that should that should turn us from one direction to another yeah and that governor is present even in decisions that don't seem on the surface to be um moral moral choices. moral religious yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and in fact, as I was thinking about this, this the conversation that we'd have today, I, 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 I remembered that a lot of people think about God or the Bible, but only in reference to morality. How, am I, am I yeah. being a moral person? But God is the creator of all things. So God is pro-business. God is pro-agriculture. God is pro parenting. God is, God is, you know, he is, he has created all things. He is the ultimate architect and designer of all things. And so any question in life that we have, whether it's business or family or morality or health, or whether we should go to this school or that school or any of those things, God is, God is desirous to lead us into good decisions in any of the various decisions we might have in life. And, and this is what I think trips up a lot of people who look at the faith from outside and they say, well, okay, David, you're crazy because you keep talking about God telling you to do things. And um, I think they imagine you're having this Moses at the burning bush experience in the modern day yeah. where you hear a loud booming voice that says, you must go to this college uh, after high school. Right. Marry this woman. Yeah, right. and, that, and that that's not what we're referring to when we say no. God spoke to me and God God told me God no. heard on my heart. But I, I people experience this, and I observe it in, in my work as an advisor, where people will come to me with a financial decision and they will often battle with what they think they should do. And it's yeah. not a should that was imposed upon them by me. It was not a should that was imposed upon them by their spouse or their family. It was, hey, I think I want to buy this house. I know I probably shouldn't. Or I think I want to spend this money on travel. I know I probably shouldn't. Or I think I want to invest here. I know I probably should, but I'm having a hard time doing Whatever it is, there's a lot of times people struggle with the, the should or shouldn't. And I think in a way that that is that moral code where oftentimes they're the should that they are feeling they ought to do is incongruent or it is congruent with a biblical framework and biblical teaching about teachings about how to manage money. For example, I don't ever have someone say, I got this offer to, uh, you know, I got this letter in the mail for a, a personal loan at, at 18.99% APR <laughs> and I don't want to do it, but I feel like I ought to. It's always the opposite. It's always the <laughs> yeah. wanting. It's always the should is congruent with biblical frameworks. Right, right. Well, w the whole notion of God's will is so is such a big topic, and I mean, I think it's it might be one of the top three or four things that people uh, are think about frequently, especially especially Christians. They're asking the question, "What is God's will? What is God's will? How do we make that decision?" There was a great book that was written back in the 1980s by Gary Friesen called Decision Making and the Will of God. And, and that book was really pretty pivotal because it turned the traditional view of the will of God on its head. Up to that point, there had been a lot of teaching that God has this bullseye for your life, this bullseye. And you have to find that bullseye. He has a bullseye for your mate that you're going to marry. He has a bullseye of which school you're going to attend. He has a bullseye of where you're going to live and how much money you're going to make. He's got this bullseye. And so people who wanted to know the will of God were constantly trying to figure out, gosh, I can only marry the person that is the exact person that God's, God has bullseye for me. He's pointed out for me. And what Friesen did is said, no, I don't actually think that's how the Bible describes the will of God. And what he discussed is that God, the dimensions of God's will are really three. Number one, God has a moral will. That's what we would call the Ten Commandments. 
These are non-negotiable. They're not open for interpretation. Just don't kill people. Okay? I mean, it's just, it's just that simple. It's his moral will. The second part of God's will is his sovereign will. Now, this is the will of God that's much higher up. It is the fact that you cannot thwart God. You can disobey God, but at the end, God wins. He's able to orchestrate and pull all the pieces together so that everything accomplishes all that he intends. That is, that's his sovereign will. But the third part of his will, which is really pertinent to our discussion, is this individual will. And what Friesen said in his book, and there's been other authors that have kind of agreed with this, is that within God's moral will and his sovereign will, he gives a great deal of freedom to God's, to his people. He gives a great deal of freedom for us to go left and then go right. Oh, maybe decide to come back left again. Um, the classic example he talks about is, you know, you got three schools that, that you've applied to, and all three schools say, yes, come, we'll take you. Well, what's God's will? And the answer is, choose. I mean, it's probably not a bullseye. Now, if you know that God wants you to go to this school instead of that school, and you disagree with that, you say, I don't care, I'm going to do what I want. Well, that would be disobedience. But in God's silence, I think we have the freedom to go, you know what? As long as I don't violate his moral will, and I keep my sights on him and desire to honor him with my life, I think he's given me freedom to marry this person as opposed to that person, to go to this school rather than to go to that school, to make this investment rather than to make that investment. He gives me that freedom. And I continue to walk that way until God leads me or turns me or there's something that happens in my life that gives me a sense that now it's time to take a different turn. Yeah. Yeah, and, and and I think if you're you're aware of this moral will and sovereign will, the individual choice it takes a lot of the pressure off to say, oh. all right, these are, you know, and we do that with our kids, right? You know, okay, do you want do you want to wear this today or this today? You know, I've made the 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 You've filtering, filtered I filtered yeah. it down, yeah. and then between that, it doesn't matter. And I think that's what you know these sort of moral wills and sovereign wills do is it filters it down and go, hey, beyond that, do what you want. That's right. um, I want to bring you back to something we were talking about earlier, just just a second ago. We were talking about the 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 way that you align decision making, and you look at prayer, you look at God's word, you look at uh, wise counsel, and when you look at, and I think that wise counsel, because of the work that Sanger and I both do, you know, is in the area of financial planning, and we consider ourselves wise counsel. But how do you look at determining? Am I being advised by someone of wise counsel versus somebody who might be leading me astray? Yeah, I mean, there's not all counsel is created equally, right? The internet has yeah. made us all experts. When I go to my doctor and I tell my doctor yeah. that I've been on WebMD for the last two hours, and <laughs> they I, love that, know, by the way. No, yeah, they, they, they can't stand <laughs> that because because all counsel is not created equal. So I think who we get our counsel from. I mean, this is what we teach our kids, right? Our kids are hanging out with a friend group and one of them, you know, our kids come home and say, well, you know, Molly said that we should do this. And you're like, well, I wouldn't listen to Molly. You know, Molly's made these, yeah. Molly's made these mistakes in the past. Let's, let's, let's choose better counsel. So I do think it's important for us to choose counselors, whether it's in health or finance or, or relationships, marriage counseling or whatever, is to choose those counselors wisely, choose people that you know align with or at least make room for the things of God in the way that they counsel. So I, 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 think, I think the decision of which person you decide that you're going to sit under and listen to becomes incredibly important. For me, if I'm going to get marriage advice, I, I want to go to a counselor that I believe has God's design of marriage in their toolbox. That's a fundamental. And maybe he's been married a bunch of times. Yeah, he's yeah, tried it out. Yeah. Right. He's he, knows, he knows the, you know, the pros and cons. Right. He's kicked the tires. He's got a lot of experience. But I mean, he knows but truly, yeah, because I believe that God is the greatest designer of marriage. I would want a counselor that understands God's will in regards to marriage. So I, I think finding those people that, for me, align 
with God's heart on things, uh, it makes 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 sure that the kind of advice that I'm going to get lines up with the Word of God and the principles of God. I think an, an important characteristic of that wise counsel is that they know that they aren't the source of the information. Um, and, and an easy filter for that is, right, uh, obviously a, a Christian counselor is going to innately believe that he is not the source of this wisdom. Um, right. But that's what we're saying when say, hey, I want a, I want a counselor, I want an advisor, I want this wise counsel to come from someone who is wise enough to know they are not the source. Uh, and, that's right. And someone who is then seeking wisdom outside of themselves to transfer that to me. That's right. I mean, I think what you're talking about is in many ways is humility. And and ironically, a humble person makes often makes for a wise counselor. A humble leader makes for a great leader. It's and it seems it's counterintuitive because you'd think the greatest leaders the greatest the greatest counselors are the ones that know it all. The greatest leaders are the ones who are demonstrative and makes the perfect decisions all the time. But humility becomes that virtue, I believe, that really makes somebody worth listening to and somebody worth following. Well, I think you said something the other day, Sire, that I thought was really good. You were talking about your relationship. Relief. <laughs> well, it doesn't happen very often, so it, sta- it stood out. No, no, just that's why it was so profound, yeah. right? Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's Yeah. So you you had mentioned in your relationship with clients, you said, "Well, I don't. I'm not trying to give them advice. I'm trying to help them arrive at a good decision. Help them make a good decision by giving mm-hmm. them information." I thought that was really smart way to. Yeah, I can I can have recommendations and say, "Okay, David. Well, I know these things about you. You have a relationship. I know how you typically handle things. So this is my recommendation for you." But what's the most effective is to get you to make that decision on your own, um, right? Because the the it's only me telling you what to do is only going to work for the things that were already obvious. You came in or that you already wanted to, or that do. you already wanted to do, you know, you thought you should probably go with B instead of a, and so you asked me, Hey, what do you think? And I say, you should do No, That's what I thought. Um, but right. if you're truly grappling with, you don't know, and you can't figure out, then we're going to, I want it to be collaborative. And, um, right. and oftentimes what I tell clients is I will consider this, a success if you confidently arrive at a decision point. It's not necessarily that you need to pick A or B. Obviously, right. my right. responsibility is that if yeah. A is going to damage you, right. I will I'll keep you, you from getting off a cliff. Right, right, right. right. But, sure, sure. But I want you to have a confident a confident decision, and if the, the decision is I'm not going to do that, then that's yeah. good. Yeah, you make, me, you make me remember a long time ago, I, t- I was taking a, a class on teaching theory and principles of teaching. And I'll never forget the paradigm that was shared. And it's a pretty simple paradigm, but I think it's effective. They said the, the least effective learning takes place when the teacher asks a question and then the teacher has to answer the question because nobody knows the answer. The next yeah. <laughs> more, more, more effective is the teacher asks the question and the student answers the question. Even more effective is the student asks the question and the teacher answers the question. And the most effective is the student asks the question. And then in time, with some lingering, the student is able to answer their own question. That's the most effective learning. And so I think, you know, the best counselors are the ones that just keep, I think, you know, they, they keep the, the information on the floor. They keep, they keep the, 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 the counselees talking. Keep your mouth moving so that people can arrive at the answers they may very well already know. They just needed somebody to help facilitate that that learning. Yeah, I, I see that happen at my jujitsu gym. The the better someone gets at their own skill development, the more they move upward in the ranks. The, the first thing that happens is they're able to receive the answers better, and they go, oh, "Okay, coach showed me this. He he only had to repeat himself five times before I got yeah. the move down." <laughs> and then it becomes to where they can do it quicker. They only have to show them once or twice. And then they're able to ask questions eventually. And that takes like two, three years before people can even ask questions that are remotely comprehensible. And then they're asking questions and they're presuming the answer. Uh, Hey, I have this problem and I think this is the thing. Am I completely wrong here? Yeah. And, and coaches essentially there to confirm, go, now you're on the right track. Yeah. You wrote a book called Next level discipleship and um, next step, excuse me. 
So Sean was raving about it because he it resonated with him so much because so much so many of the lessons that you have for pastors are also lessons that can be applied to business. So I can you walk us through what the what the the key um decision making frameworks are that you wrote about in that book? Yeah. So next step discipleship, and there's also a a pastor leader version called Next Step Church really looks at the paradigm by which we do church at Central Bible Church. Uh, we know that all churches are seeking to do good work, and there's lots of different paradigms. We have a particular paradigm that we refer to as a spiritual pathway, and that spiritual pathway is is defined in three words, belong, become, and beyond. And so those three, those three steps in the spiritual pathway are intended to help guide a person along the way of uh, a pathway to greater spiritual living, growing in the Lord, becoming mature, uh, experiencing the flourishing that God intends for their life. So let me let me just tell you those three pathways, uh, steps. Number one is belong. Belong is all about connection. We want to help people make a connection to God, and we want to help people make a connection to each other, to the body of Christ and to, to their people and to experience biblical community as as fellow Christ followers. And so we believe that it's real hard to go any further in the spiritual life until you belong to Jesus Christ through faith in him and until you belong to a community of people where you can all grow together. So that's the first step is belong. And the second step is become. Become is all about transformation. It's about a, um, a sanctified discontent with where you are and a desire to be more mature to be less angry, to have more self-control, to be more humble, to be uh, more sensitive to people. To, it's just the transformation that God intends to do in every single person's life. And so uh, our, our hope, our desire is to help people experience the transformation of God's Holy Spirit in their life. And each of us individually, I personally want to experience greater transformation in my spiritual life with God. So that's belong and become and then the last step in the spiritual pathway is the step of going beyond. Uh, we believe that the spiritual life, that God draws us into a relationship, a personal relationship with himself through his son, Jesus, not just for our sakes, but for the sake of being a blessing, being an extension, a conduit of God's grace to both our neighbors and the nations. And so uh, our desire is to help people, and the book is, is framed to help people see themselves at, uh, on mission. So whether they teach or they're an attorney or they serve at a grocery store or they are going to school right now, to see themselves as the hands and feet of Jesus, encouraging people, uh, advising people, uh, showing compassion to people, and being used by God in their life. So that's that's really the framework. And it's, it's what we teach at our church, but it's really the book is designed to, to help people embrace that simple paradigm for their own lives. Yeah, I, I think when I when I saw those three frameworks and, re, and read that, uh, you'd given me the book a few years ago, uh, just because of where I was coming from, it connected with me in terms of how I deal with people in a in the relationships of financial advice and and business is you know I want to I want to create that connection. I want to transform that into a deeper relationship. And I want to have that, you know, go beyond that where it's helping that person transform their wealth into significance. Yeah. Uh, and so it really, that, that framework I, th I think is really brilliant in terms of how we approach, you know, not just a church relationship or a spiritual relationship with, but a lot of meaningful relationships, whether it's marriage, whether it's business, you know, and so forth. Yeah, and I and I and I agree with you, Sean, because you know those steps. Though we talk about the fact that it's it's really more organic than linear, the reality is is that there's very little transformation without connection. And I and I think that would be true in business. Apart from true connection with people, the building of clientele, the building of interpersonal relationship, there's going to be very little transformation or change or benefit in that relationship or for that customer client, if you will, unless there is the connection first. So connection is, uh, you know, is, is, is primary 
And from that connection would then come transformation. Out of that transformation, God willing, there would be mission or sense of purpose or sense of doing something that's good. Part of transformation uh, to me seems, um, at least in some cases, that a change of belief is necessary. Um, when When you're going through a transformation, there's certainly large changes that have to happen. It doesn't always have to be a change in belief. But in some cases, beliefs are what are limiting us. Uh, maybe it's a, a fundamental worldview, right? It, it's it's a yeah. it's a religious type belief, or it's a smaller belief. You know, a belief that I'm not capable, and and my belief about myself is actually what's holding me back from transforming to the leader that I'm capable of becoming. I'll you know, as a pastor, you are speaking with people about their beliefs all the time. And yeah, one of the major things you're doing is helping people change their belief. So, right, how do people go about the process of changing their belief? Uh, very slowly. <laughs> I mean, to get people to change their minds is 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 a hard thing. When I when I write a sermon, the goal of every message that I preach is change. You want to see people changed. And there are really three steps to change. The most basic step is a change of belief. And out of that, there's a second step called change of affection. My values, my heart, I agree with it, I embrace it. And the third step is a change of behavior. Now, the hope every single time is that people would change their behavior. They would stop being so obstinate. They would be more apologetic to their spouse. They would they would be more uh, moral or ethical at work. They would say they're sorry for something they did wrong. Any of those kind of things. You hope that that at the end of the sermon that people would actually go do something. There'd be a change of behavior. But that doesn't. That's not always. That doesn't always happen. And 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 the only way you can change behavior is to have in that sermon changed affection and changed belief. So so. Fundamentally, changing people's belief system is is absolutely essential before you can change their heart affections or before you can even change behavior. And imagine that's you guys see that in your business all the time. And the change of belief, I think, comes from a consistency in a truth-telling uh, uh, document in 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 changing a person's belief means that the speaker has to be believable and the truth they deliver has to be believable truth and so i i speak from a document the bible which is authoritative and is believable it's it's logically cons- consistent it is coherent it is logically non-contradictory so so just using a document that is true is compelling for people and hopefully my character and my witness is true so that a true person speaking true information is more likely to change people's belief about something than a good person speaking from incredible document or a an untrustworthy per, untrustworthy person speaking from a credible document those two things have to happen yeah, I, I think one of the things when we look at change and, you know, people come to a financial advisor, they're not wanting usually incremental or slight change. They're wanting bigger change. And I, I think you, re- you referenced Danielle Strickland. Uh, she mentioned that at any given time, people are, there's only maybe 20% of the people who are to a point of action in their ch- right. in their change. They're, you know, in other words, they're ready to take action. Both Sanger and I, we look at that and we go, oh, that's high. Like I, I can't believe that. <laughs> there's no way that's high. And I, and I think the reason that we felt it was high, that 20% of the people ready for change in action was high is because when, when I look at someone that's going from a point of inaction to action, I want that to be big. Like if I hire a personal trainer, I don't hire a personal trainer because I want to get a little bit better. I want to hire a personal trainer because I want to transform right. what's happening. You know, the, uh-huh. and so those are hard changes, and I think you're right in that that those changes to be effective, to be able to move me to action, I've got to have that belief that this is taking somewhere. That's right. Right. That's right. And and so when I when I think about that, 
how do I how do I deal with the change in belief of affection because that seems to be at a at a core that's my values I think you mentioned right how do I right. reassess those and make sure that those are in line or highlight the ones that are going to move me to action yeah for most people I think the change in belief and affection which will ultimately lead to a change in behavior often comes at, at a moment of crisis and trauma it's it's when they've okay. been pushed with pressure into a place where they've had to realize it's I, I I can't keep doing the exact same thing that I've always been doing and their 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 hand is forced I mean Sean I think about our relationship I mean there have been times in the last 10 or 15 years that we've known each other that you've had to tell me the same thing I know it's the same thing when you say it I'm like well deja vu this sounds real familiar and it's the same thing. <laughs> You're not it's the, the only same, one new, don't <laughs> But I think, you know, it's the same thing over and over and over again. And I think for me, it takes a consistency, both of the person delivering it and the content that's being delivered. And then oftentimes at a moment of trauma or crisis for me to realize, okay, this really is the way. And so uh, I don't think people change their affections that easily. It, I think it yeah. takes I think it takes a consistent counsel, consistent speaking into their life, oftentimes at a moment, at a juncture of trauma or crisis or something for them mm-hmm. to to tr- truly step away from the same thing they've been doing that hasn't been working to try something different. But, but don't I want to look at change you know, when I'm at a good spot? I mean, I, I don't want to wait till a crisis point or, or, or put myself in a crisis point to make that change. How do I recognize if I've got optimal energy, let's say, you know, and I'm ready to to make a change, wouldn't I want to do that at a point of positive emotion rather than a point of distress Absolutely. I'm at, at crisis level? Yeah, it is so much easier to begin making incremental changes. Uh, you know, it's, it's a lot easier for me to start practicing uh, apology or humility or, you know, generosity in my marriage in incremental steps rather than waiting to some huge crisis 10 years in when everything's blown up and trying to figure out how to be humble and apologetic or, or something like that. So, yeah, it, 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 it makes so much more sense to do it incrementally. It's just that people have a hard time getting to that place. Yeah, it I might think be that to, that incremental step would keep you out of the crisis point. <laughs> well, I, I, exactly right. Yeah, if people could learn the, if if we could all learn that incremental step, and I, for me, part of the value, this this speaks to me, part of the value of a community of people of like minded people that you do life with, that to step together into incremental change, into greater generosity. Let's say to do it by myself, I may not do it. To do it with a tribe of people where we've all agreed that we're going to kind of take some steps together, that accountability, I think, yields a greater discipline move and, 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 and yields greater fruit. And once we get to the new place, we go, hey, this is really, this is a lot better than we thought it was going to be. Hey, let's take another step. What about when the, the behavior change needs cannot afford to be incremental? So I remember um, when I was a kid, a youth pastor saying this, uh, one of my classmates asked him, Hey, you know, like I'm struggling with this sin or I don't even remember what it was. Right. Um, can I just like cut back a little bit over time? And, and to the kid's credit, it was not a, um, you know, criminal sin. It It wasn't heroin. Right. (laughs) But that's what, that's what the pastor said. He goes, well, if it was murder, you wouldn't just do it a little bit less. Yeah. (laughs) If you're a serial killer, you're not just going to cut back. (laughs) Yeah. And uh, that, that changed how I I thought about sin forever. So when it's, um, and, and I guess you could take that even to the, the level of, Hey, I should be more apologetic to spouse. And when I'm not, that's, that's a problem. And I can't afford to not be, can't afford to be satisfied with incremental change, but certainly some some actions don't they can't afford that increment change right right yeah i mean i i used to i've said to people before you know you know you've put a you've got a cup of cyanide 
So let's reduce it by half and fill the rest with water. You're ready to drink it. And the answer is, well, no. Well, let's just take a little bit more out. And, and, you know, how safe is it until you're willing to drink it? And the answer is, I want it to be completely gone before I would drink the, the resulting water. And, and I think I think the murder illustration is even a better illustration. I do think there's a difference between the things that we're doing that are wrong that we need to stop doing versus the things which are better we need to start doing. The things that we need to start doing which are better, I think we could argue, well, that may take some incremental change. Uh, I I should start being uh, slightly more generous. And then then from that generosity, learn a, a greater sense of generosity, let's just say, moving forward. But when we talk about sin... We know that there's moral problems in our life. We know that we're treating people wrongly. Yeah, this notion that I'm just going to treat people not as wrongly today as I did yesterday hardly cuts it. And uh, and I and I and so how do you get people in this in the big areas to pull all the way back? And and I and you know what I've seen throughout the way of pastoral ministry is that accountability, people walking together in the hard things of life yields a better outcome than sending somebody out of my office and saying, just stop it. Just this thing that you're doing that's killing your marriage, killing your kids, killing your business, killing your whatever, just stop doing that. Most people have learned a poor habit over 10 or 20 or 50 years, and this notion of stopping it is is really difficult unless they have somebody that will walk alongside them and help them. So, David, I have a final question for you. When, uh, when you think about decision-making, what would be your your best tip, your single tip for business owners and leaders? Yeah, I think for me, the most important principle of making decision is, is what is your ultimate goal? I think you have to decide what the ultimate goal is. Obviously, if your ultimate goal is to make a lot of money, then you're going to make some kind, you'll make one kind of decision. If your ultimate goal is to help people, you'll make probably a different kind of decision. For me, if your ultimate goal is, I desire to honor God with my life, with my business, with my marriage, with my school, with my mind, with my heart, I desire to honor him best, then that framework, that ultimate goal that's put in front of me uh, is what ultimately will drive the results that I get out of the decisions that I make. So if you're wanting to make decisions, business decisions, life decisions from a biblical framework, you have to start with the desire that I please God in whether, you know, the Bible says whatever you, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do it all to the glory of God. And if that's set out in front of me as a follower of Jesus, then I will make my business and church and relationship decisions with that in mind. Or at least I'll try. I'll seek the means to make decisions that will end with that goal. Thank you so much for being here, David. Where can people get a hold of your book and and connect with the work that you're doing? Yeah, thank you so much. Uh, they can always reach uh, me through our website at Central Bible Church. Our website is wearecentral.org. Uh, we also have a uh, a spiritual resource a, a spiritual life resource website, uh, nextstepdisciple.org, where they can get all kinds of spiritual resources. And my books are available on amazon.com. Awesome. Thank you so much. It was great to see you again, David. Thank you. You know what I liked about our conversation with David is is that as a lot of pastors do, he said, all right, here, here are the fundamental tips for I've got number one, X, number Dude, why he had it thought out. Oh, yeah, just A, B, C. It, it's the, kind of the way I think, so I, I really like that. My takeaway was, you know, when we look at the areas of change, starting with beliefs, understanding what they are first, and, and knowing what you believe and what your outcome is going to be, and then moving to the affective. In other words, your you know how are you feeling about it? What are your attitudes? What are your values that are aligning with this change you're wanting to make? And then moving to a point of uh, behavior or change and you know action, and so I think those three steps, keeping them in mind, can help sort of grease the skids on change. Is looking at you know what what do I believe about this? How am I feeling about this? Am I ready to take action? Yeah, my biggest takeaway um, is that within 
God's moral will, he's giving us a great deal of freedom. So David talked about the myth of the bullseye that God has for our life, and every single decision has an exact right answer that we must find from God. And that's not the case. It, often God is giving us free will. We have many pathways, many potential pathways, and none of them are wrong. And that's something that I knew inherently as an advisor where people would ask me, what should I do? And my answer often is, you can't mess up. All three options that you've presented to me are good, really about what you value most. And God does that too with us. He, he will present us with options oftentimes. None of them are wrong and none of them are right. It's up to us. You just made a great decision to listen to this episode of Decidedly. Make another great decision and leave us a five-star review wherever you listen to podcasts. We appreciate your support. It helps others find our community and defeat bad decision-making in their own lives. For more daily decision-making insights, check us out at decidedlypodcast.com and on Facebook and Instagram at decidedlypodcast. Thanks again for listening. I'm Sanger Smith, and this is Decidedly. Insights, advice, and comments provided by Sean Smith, Sanger Smith, and speakers identified as part of the Decidedly podcast should not be considered recommendations. Speakers not identified as members of Decidedly are expressing their opinion, and their statements should not be construed as reflecting the views of the Decidedly team. This podcast is produced solely for informational purposes, not personalized advice.